Well, good morning. We'll be in 1 Samuel 17 this morning. If you're using those Bibles on the chairs, it's on page 299 as we continue in this story, the life of David. I've got a question for you, though. Have you ever faced an impossible challenge or an impossible task, something that seems like you're not going to be able to live through it or survive it or be able to, to handle it? In any way, uh, for me, I thought of one last weekend. We went on the high school trip with some of our high schoolers, and we went to uh, down to southern Ohio, almost uh, uh, basically West Virginia down there, um, and big hills, kind of mountainy, you know, all like that. And we, some of the kids will say, almost died three or five times. You know, they exaggerate that um, because we were driving through the mountain hilly roads at 9:30 at night, and my driving was great. We survived. We're all here. Actually, none of the high schoolers are this morning that were there. I promise you they're alive, though. They were at the the 9 a.m. service. Uh, But we survived, right? It was okay. Somebody pointed out to me as well this morning that, uh, you know, maybe for some of you, what felt like an impossible task was watching Ohio State's offense that last minute and a half last night. That felt like an impossible task, and they did it. And I'm glad for all of you this morning that you're here and happy and not grumpy Uh, that your team lost, so I'm happy for that. I didn't have a dog in the fight and didn't like either team, so either outcome was okay for me. Um, But I'm glad you guys are nice and happy this morning. Maybe a real, how about a real impossible task, though? Maybe something in life that, on a serious note, felt like you couldn't handle it. Uh, And today, that's what our story is going to illustrate. If you've caught on by now, it's David and Goliath, Um, That's not Pastor Harold or Bill's picture up there. That is an image of Goliath. And today we're going to see a story about an impossible challenge. And we're going to see how Israel's army, their king, King Saul, and David handled what seems to be impossible. And as we look at this, I want you to see that David trusted in God in the little things before he trusted in God to handle the big things in life. So as we jump right in, 1 Samuel 17, uh, uh, verse number 1, we're going to see the giant problem today. So look at verse 1. The Bible says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Azekah and Ephesdamim. Y'all got where that's at? You know that geography? We're good? Everyone knows right where? Okay, no? Okay. Uh, if not, I didn't either. It's about 15 miles from Jerusalem about 10 miles from Bethlehem, where David's from, so that kind of helps us key in where they're at. And Saul and the men of Israel, they were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array, or they're up in their armor and all ready to go, to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley in between them. So you've got to set the scene, the Israelites on the eastern mountain, uh, you've got the Philistines on the western side, a valley in between with probably a stream running through as well. And both sides had what seemed like an insurmountable advantage and also disadvantage. The advantage was the other army couldn't get to them, or if they did, they'd have to go down in the valley and climb up a mountain and try to fight them and That's a disadvantage for both sides, both for to protect themselves from anybody trying to attack them, but it also would have made it impossible for them to do anything. So they're at a stalemate. They can't do anything because we know in the military, the high ground, that's a good tactical position. The high ground's also great in Star Wars. That's how Obi-Wan wins, if you know what I'm talking about there too. 
And so verse 4, let's see what the Philistines' idea was to fix this stalemate in battle. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. This is an image of Goliath we made. That six cubits in a span is about nine feet, nine inches tall. About that height there gives you an idea of how big this champion was. And that word champion, it literally means a man between two camps. Goliath came out because they're at a stalemate. He probably wouldn't have fought with the normal ranks. He was their man that they sent out and said he would basically challenge the other side to a duel of hand-to-hand combat. Seems like a good way to fix things, right? The war, just send your best two people out, let them fight. Whoever fights wins. Let's see what happens or more about Goliath to see if this seems fair. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He's missing his armor here, but that scaled armor like fish scales would have weighed close to 125 pounds of metal armor that he has on. Verse 6 says he also had bronze greaves on his legs, armor there, and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. Verse 7, the shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels, or about 15 pounds uh, of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He had a bodyguard, too, that carried a shield. I can't imagine his shield carrier covered much more than up to like his kneecaps, but he had a bodyguard with him. So he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Now this is interesting because a few years previous, Saul and the Israelites had fought against the Philistines and God gave them miraculous victories against them because it it was against, again, insurmountable odds and, and they dealt a great blow to the Philistines. So he's saying here, aren't you guys following that great Saul, the really, the really strong, amazing leader? Shouldn't you be fearless after the victories your God gave you? Send someone out to fight me. Surely you're not afraid of one guy. In verse 9, he says, here's his challenge. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And look at the response of the people and their leader. When Saul, the king, and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So here's Goliath, and in man's eyes, Goliath is invincible, right? He's an unstoppable fighting force. No one's going to be able to beat him. He was kind of like, you know, what maybe people would think of the U.S. military today, just an unstoppable fighting force. It's not going to happen to beat him. That's what it seems like from man's perspective. So he's mocking Israel. They're not trusting in the mighty Saul who defeated them before. They're not trusting in their God who gave him this great victory. And he's basically saying, you're all cowards if you don't come fight me. And they were terrified. Saul and Israel, again, remember, they've already proven that they're super concerned with outward appearances. Back in chapter 10, they literally select Saul to be king because he's head and shoulders taller than anybody else in the land. And obviously, being tall makes you very qualified to lead a whole country. Um, That was what they thought. They were also concerned about Goliath's size. The Bible describes, uh, they describe David as really good looking several times. So they're really concerned about outward appearances. So Goliath 
would be their worst nightmare. And there's things that can be scary in this world, right? I'm not here to dismiss that if you came against that guy in a fight, that it wouldn't be scary. Because I don't think any of us in here would say, I want to go fight that guy in hand-to-hand combat right now. If you're smart, at least you don't want to. Um, And so we're not here to say there's not hard problems in life. There's not scary things or daunting tasks to face. The difference is God's given us a way to handle them. So as we go through this story, let's compare some of the main characters here and see how they face this task. In first, verse number 12, we see David come into our story. Now, David was the son of the um, Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among Men. So we've got Jesse. We met him last week with his eight sons, uh, and David, the youngest, got uh, anointed king. And Jesse, the Bible describes him as old or advanced in years. And that's like the nice way you call like your boss. I would never call my boss that, but that'd be like the nice way you'd call somebody old. You'd say they're advanced in years. All right. So that's Jesse. He's old, advanced in years. And uh, their three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. They went to fight. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the second to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. And it's the first interesting thing we see about David Remember, David was Saul's armor bearer. Chapter 16 told us he was playing the harp for Saul. He was working with the king, but he was also going back and forth and tending his father's sheep still, being a shepherd, still handling that. Now, I would think that that was a little bit below the soon-to-be king to, you know, take care of some sheep, but David was still handling that, feeding and caring for his father's flock. And then the Bible tells us, verse 16, This is what's been going on all this time. The Philistine, Goliath, came forward morning and evening for 40 days. He took his stand, gave his spiel, you're all cowards, come fight me. Nobody did. That had been going on. And as you continue on in the verses, uh, we won't read all of them, but just kind of summarize them here. Jesse, David's dad, says, hey, I need you to run an errand for me. We're thinking, okay, the soon-to-be anointed king, he's going to do a gallant, noble quest. And Jesse says, go take some bread to your brother's deliver lunch to your brothers. This is the soon-to-be king. He goes, oh, 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 and take some cheese to their commanders. You know, like kind of help your brothers out a little bit, get them in good favor, take a present to them, and then just find out how things are going. That's David's brave, noble quest. It's easy to look at that kind of, right? If you're thinking like me and you're thinking, this guy was just told in the last chapter he's going to be the next king. I would think Jesse would be thinking, we need to get him ready to be king and not watching the sheep and taking lunch to his brothers. It seems like there's something better you could do with him, right? And perhaps they don't really understand what's going on yet. Perhaps they they don't really understand the gravity of it. But maybe you feel like that sometimes. Your job, your task in life is too small, not important enough. Maybe the task God's given you isn't amazing. Think about David here. He didn't get to do amazing until he handled boring first watching the sheep, delivering lunch. And we'll see more about the amazing he gets to do. As you continue on in in verse 20, you you see David get to the battle. And he has some conversations with people, and and he leaves leaves his flock with uh, the people, some other people to keep 
keep uh, his father's sheep. He didn't just leave them alone. He, he drops off the food to the people that handle that uh, at the battle, and he gets up there, and he's trying to find out what's going on. So look at verses uh, 23 and 24 here. As he was talking with them, so he's talking with the soldiers of Israel, and behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines. And he spoke these same words, and David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. David comes up here, and I can see him bringing the food to them, dropping it off, kind of finding out how the battle's going, seeing it's at a stalemate. And just as he does that, Goliath comes out. And again, is mocking God, mocking Israel, doing all this. And David's like, what is going on, guys? And as David says that, he looks around and everyone's gone because they ran away in fear and hid from him. This has been going on for 40 days and they're still hiding like, like they're terrified of him. So David asks him, what, like, what's going on? Are we going to do something about this guy? And the people say, yeah, 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 yeah. Saul said, whoever kills the giant, uh, they're going to get great wealth. They're going to be a free person and their whole family. That means they're going to be free of taxes. That's a big thing. They're going to be free um, from having military service, and you're going to get to marry one of Saul's daughters. So that's what's on the line here. And David asking about that, David was finding out who's going to take care of this. And you see, it's interesting because Saul, just a few years ago, was trusting in God and seeing great victories won against the Philistines, and now Saul's not even thinking about God and trusting in him, but he's looking for his own way to pay somebody to take care of his problem. So David asked a question. Again, he asked, who's going to handle this? What are we going to do? What's going to be done to this man who's defying our God? And the people again are like, well, you'll get some money for whoever kills him. David wasn't asking who, what's going to happen to the person, but who's going to take care of it? Because David is outraged. He's mad that a Philistine was mocking their God. Not that he was mad that somebody from this other country was doing it, but the Philistine, Goliath, didn't serve the one true God. He was angry that this guy that didn't have a relationship with God was mocking their God, mocking his people, and dishonoring God. Think about how upset you would be if somebody was talking bad about your mother or your sister or someone in your family. You'd take a stand for that. But even more than something like that, Goliath here was challenging the Israelites to prove that their God was real. If God was real, then he'd defeat the giant, right? He would let one of his people easily defeat the guy defying him. So by not going out to fight him, Israel was saying either they didn't believe God was real or at the least they didn't trust him to win the battle. Do you trust God enough to get you through any situation? So David's brothers hear him talking like this, and Eliab comes up in verse 28, and tell he's angry against David. Eliab is the oldest brother and thinks he knows what's best. Now, don't hold this against the oldest in the family, because like 99% of the time, we know what's best, we know everything, we know what's going on. So younger kids in the families. Understand, Eliab doesn't speak for all of us. He didn't get it, but like the rest of us know what's going on, okay? He probably thought David was some ignorant kid. He's probably a little jealous because typically the oldest child should be anointed the next king, not the youngest shepherd boy. And so Eliab says, hey, you're more fit to handle the sheep than to fight a giant. That's why we send you out there. He also claims David is essentially doing this all for his own glory, says, David, you're just trying to make a name for yourself. 
And look at David's response here to him. But David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? And that phrase, was it not just a question in other translations is, is there not a cause? Is there not a reason to be upset, to go handle this problem? Like, is there a cause that's worthy? You see, David knew that God would give whoever wanted to go fight this the strength, whether they were a shepherd or a warrior. He trusted that God was going to give them the victory. Do you believe that God can give us the strength and the courage to do whatever task he sets before us? So David gets his message to the king. Look at verse 31. David here, uh, when the words which David spoke were heard, they went to Saul, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him, Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. David says, hey, I've got this, Saul. Don't worry about it. Don't be fearful. Don't let your men be fearful. Your servant, me, I've got this handled. God's going to give me the victory. So verse 33, Saul says to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. He's like, David, you are just a kid. And remember, David's less than 20, probably even less than 18 here. Um, he is just a child. He's not old enough for military service. Um, and he says, hey, you're just a kid. This guy's been training to fight since he was younger than you, and, and you can't go fight this guy. And from a human perspective, Saul was totally right. We wouldn't send a, a middle schooler to go fight in a war, so we shouldn't send David to go do it either. This totally made sense. And here's David's response, though. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. And I went out after him and attacked him. It didn't attack, it didn't attack David. David attacked the lion and the bear and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. David said, hey, I'm a shepherd. I've been watching the sheep and a lion and a bear attacked the sheep. And most of us, if you're like me, if you're watching sheep or something like that, and a lion and a bear attacks it, I'm going to let the lion and the bear have the one sheep, right? It's not important enough, okay? I'm not fighting hand-to-hand combat against a bear to protect one sheep. But David fought against them. David goes, I've handled bigger problems than this, but look at, and he says, so I can handle Goliath. But look at who David gives the credit to here, not his own strength. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. David said, no, no, it wasn't my strength that defeated this bear. God gave me the victory and he's going to give me the victory over Goliath, just like he did over a lion and a bear. So Saul says, go, do it. And in verse 38, though, Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and he clothed him with armor. There's debate on whether it was actually Saul's literal armor or just some extra they had lying around. But either way, they fit David in armor. And in verse 39, David girded his sword over his armor and he tried to walk for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. And David took them off. It was Saul's armor. Saul was pretty tall dude. It probably didn't fit very well. David's trying to waddle out there in this armor that doesn't fit him. Too big. David says, I haven't gone to battle. I haven't prepared. I haven't trained with this on. You don't go to battle with a brand new weapon you've never used before. 
You don't put on armor you've never worn before and try to go fight for the very first time. David says, get it off. I don't need it. So what does David take into battle instead? He took his stick, his stick in his hand, and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. David took tools that would have been appropriate for a shepherd to have his staff, his stick, the Bible calls it, and his slingshot and some stones. That was tools that David was comfortable using, tools he would have used many times before that he was practiced with, and he went out to battle. Now, a sling also wouldn't have been uncommon in this time. They, they would have used that in battle as well, so it's not a, a crazy weapon for him to have had. But David took what he was already used to using, and he took his first step without fear and accepted Goliath's challenge. So let's see his confrontation with Goliath. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with his shield bearer, his bodyguard, in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he, was dis- he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with handsome appearance. David, like me, was handsome. <clears throat> then the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, his false gods. The Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beast of the field. The Philistine says, seriously? I've been up here for 40 days and the best you can send to me is a kid? Like, and he doesn't even have a weapon. He's got a stick and some, st- like, seriously, guys? You're making fun of me? He goes, all right, kid, if you're going to fight me, I'm going to feed your dead body to the birds and to the animals. That's what he's going to do. So David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, a lot of weapons, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. David says, my God is better than your gods that you've cursed me with. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 47, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David says, no, the Lord's going to give me victory. He's better than your gods. He's real. He's going to give me the victory, and he doesn't need swords or javelins or spears. This victory is already God's. And David said, better than what you said. You you know, Goliath said, I'm going to feed your body, David's body, to the birds. David says, no, I'm going to feed your whole army's body to the birds and the animals. David called him out, and he said, everybody here watching is going to witness my God defeat you. So let's see what happens. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came near and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David's not weighed down by heavy armor. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Then David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. So verse 51, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took, I imagine what that looks like, and he took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. David, 
in an instant. This probably the conversation him and Goliath had took longer than their fight. He slung a rock at him. It hit Goliath in the head. The Bible says sunk into his head and Goliath fell over. It was done like that. That was their battle. This shepherd boy with a sling and a stone defeated Goliath with all these weapons. This giant guy, because God gave him the victory. You see, David, though, fought in the name of the Lord and for God's glory. David understood the chief issue here was Goliath and the Philistines were challenging God and his people. And God was going to give David great victory. David removed his head, took it back with him. And remember, Goliath said, whoever won this duel, the other side was going to serve them as their servants. Well, that didn't happen because David also just said, I'm going to feed your whole army, uh, bodies to the birds. So they took off running as soon as they saw Goliath get beaten. Like they were gone. They're out of there. And it was probably wise because then in verse 52, uh, we see the men of Israel and Judah, they took off after them in battle and, um, they defeated them. They, they plundered their camps, took their stuff back. And, uh, historians say anywhere up to 30,000 Philistines were killed that day and many more injured. The Bible doesn't give us an exact number for sure, but we know Israel held a great victory that day. And in the end of the passage, verses 55 through 58, Saul is like, looks at his general and it's like, hey, who is a David guy? Not, not that he didn't know him because like David was playing harp for him and he was his armor bearer, he knew him, but he's saying, hey, who's his family? Well, why would that be important? Who his dad is, who his family is? Well, remember, whoever defeated Goliath, what were they getting? Great wealth. They were going to be given a a break from taxes and military service. And whoever killed the giant was going to get to marry Saul's daughter. So he wanted to know a little bit more about that family that was going to (laughs) be blessed so greatly from them. But you see, we look at this story and see this great victory David had. We say, okay, then, well, how does it apply to us? So let's look at some truths that we see in this story real quickly, just five of them that, that give us a, a challenge from this story as well. And the first one here is we need to be faithful in the little things before we can be faithful in the big things. Just like David. We saw this going back to last week. David was faithful in just taking the next step. The first time we saw David wasn't him fighting Goliath, right? The first time we saw David, he was just a shepherd, anointed to be king. The next time we see David, he's taking lunch to his brothers. He's taking that just next step, doing what he's supposed to do, the simple, small, boring things. Then we see him fight a lion and a bear. It's getting progressively bigger. And then he fights Goliath, and we're going to see him do a bunch of other things as well in the future. But David took that next step in just doing the next thing God brought for him. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. I'll bet David, before he was anointed king, had a whole plan for his life. David said, I'm going to do this. Then Samuel shows up and says, no, actually, you're going to be king. And then David thought, well, great, and probably started planning how it was going to look like to be king. I bet that didn't include fighting an almost 10-foot-tall guy uh, in combat like that, right? I'll bet it didn't, after he was anointed king, it didn't count watching sheep or taking lunch to his brothers either. He probably thought he was going to be doing more important things. But you see, God directed his steps, and David faithfully followed the small things first. The New Testament, Jesus gives us a story in Matthew 25, uh, 14 through 30. It's the parable of the talents. Uh, Jesus gives a story about 
um, a master who represents Jesus and these servants who represent believers. And the master says, I'm going on a trip. I'm going to give you all some money, talents, the Bible calls them to take care of. And he gives to two of his servants. One of them, he gives five. One of them, he gives two. And one of them, he gives one. So he gives them each a different, uh, a different amount to take care of. And he goes away. So while he's gone, the servants do different things with him. Two of them go to the market and they basically, they double what they have. One gets, doubles it from five to 10, two to four. The other one says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to dig a hole and bury it in the ground. Cool. So let's see what the master says when he gets back. The master comes back and he looks at his first two servants and he says this. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. When he meets that other servant, the hypocritical one, the servant who was lazy and didn't do anything with it, he calls him a hypocrite and ultimately sends him out to destruction. You see, this story was all about differing levels of responsibility given and about faithfulness. The reward given to them wasn't based on how much they got back. It was just on being faithful and doing something with what they were given. He says, Your faith, you were faithful in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. We see here they were rewarded equally, not based on how good they did, but just on the fact that they were faithful versus the servant who did nothing. And, you know, for those of us that have trusted in Christ for salvation, we in, inherit a job to be faithful with what we have to do as well. And God gives us blessings and things to use that we can And not that our works save you because our faith in Christ saved us, but it should motivate us to do good works. You see, those servants that were faithful in few things, Jesus says, I'll put you in charge of much. And the the idea I want us to get here is Jesus didn't, Jesus, uh, when he's giving us spiritual jobs, he didn't give them the big things until they were faithful with a little. Think back to David's life as well. He was faithful in the small things before it was the giant things. Be faithful in the small things and be prepared as God takes us the next steps and gives us more responsibility. Our second takeaway from this can be we need to see problems we face as training. Look at James 1, 2 through 4. The Bible tells us, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Listen, sometimes we're faced with problems and trials. David was, right? He was attacked by a lion and a bear. He had to fight a giant. And some would say those problems are crazy, but David views it as training for a bigger adversity. Do you view your problems that way as well? Sometimes as Christians, we think, I shouldn't have to go through problems. Life should be easy and... The Bible tells us that's not true. Here's what the Bible tells us is these trials. As believers, we're actually called to make a conscious commitment to go through trials and problems with joy. And that sounds kind of crazy, but look at the outcome. Trials denotes trouble or something that breaks the pattern of peace, comfort, joy, happiness in someone's life. The verb means to put someone or something to the test. You see, God brings these tests to prove and to increase the strength and quality of one's faith, and to demonstrate its validity. Through these trials, God brings spiritual maturity. He actually helps us become 
better Christians. The testing of faith drives believers to deeper communion with God and a greater trust in Christ, and it in turn produces stable, godly, and righteous character. So how do you look at the problems you're facing in life? Do you look at them with joy or in a positive way? Do you focus on how God's maturing you as a Christian? Or do we look at them as a problem, something I got to get through? Know that God can use them and is using them to make you a better Christian. The third thing, we need to be, uh, we need to focus on what God sees in people and not the outward appearance. The Israelites, Saul, they were so focused on outward appearances. King Saul being tall, David being good-looking, the Goliath being unstoppable. But look at 1 Samuel 16, 7. It says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. It can be easy for us to look at someone's outside appearance or look at what they're acting like on the outside and think we know everything, but know that God focuses on a person's heart, their spiritual maturity inside of them because their spiritual condition is more important to God. The fourth thing is be comfortable with the tools God's given you. Remember, David didn't go into battle with the armor he never used. He didn't use the sword he never used. He took the tools he was comfortable with, a sling and a staff. And it seemed crazy, but it was what he knew. It was what he knew how to use. And the Bible tells us that our weapon for us as Christians is God's word. It's our sword. So look at what 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us about using it. It says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth or the Bible. Here it's said to Timothy, who's a pastor, but I think there's a little bit of a, an application for all of us as Christians, because all of us are going to have opportunities to share the gospel, share God's word, teach others, whether it's our kids, our siblings, our friends, whoever it is. And so for a Christian, it's important for us to make sure we're completely and accurately and clearly handling God's word, whether it's studying it ourselves or sharing it with others. Here that word for accurate means cutting it straight, it means be familiar with it. Precision and accuracy is of the utmost importance when we handle God's word. Listen, we have so many resources here to help you too. We had a grow class yesterday that went great where we learned how to study the Bible. Me and Pastor Harold have more resources if you need it, but know how to use the weapon, the tool God's given you to complete his will. Don't miss out on what God has for you because you don't know how to use the tools he's given you to accomplish his will. And here's the last one, and, and we'll have the band come forward during this one, and we'll close with a song. But our last one, number five, trust that God's plan is the best plan for your life. Listen, do you think, the, do you think David's initial plan for his life was working out here, like fighting animals in the field, fighting Goliath? Like, do you think that was his plan? Probably not. Are you willing to trust, though, that God's plan is the best for your life? Look at Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all, all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. That verse tells you that everything will work out for good according and to accomplish God's will. And it works out for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Who's that? Well, if you've trusted in Christ as your savior, that's you. That's me. God says, you are the called. If you've trusted in him, you've placed your faith and trust in him, and he's got a plan for your life. And if you love him and you're serving him, things are going to work out for good. Now, is it your good? Is it my good? Does it mean you'll be rich and have 
perfect peace in life and never have any problems? No, that's not what it means. But what it means is it'll work out best in life to give God the glory. So the question we have to ask ourselves about that is, are we focused on giving the God the glory for our life? Or are we focused on getting it for ourselves? Today we saw the story of the mighty David. Wait, no, I'm sorry, the shepherd boy who allowed God to use him in a mighty way and accomplish this amazing feat. And listen, God wants to use you and me as well. We need to be focused on taking the next steps as Christians, just following what God has for us, focused on trusting in God to use our problems and our trials to deepen our faith, make us more spiritually mature as he plans to grow us. Some of us are out looking for our giant that we need to kill, but we haven't watched the sheep or delivered lunch yet. We haven't done that small thing yet, and, and we need to focus on what God has right in front of us, those small things. God may have big things in store for us, but we first need to be faithful in the small things, and then no matter what happens, no matter what God brings in front of us, no matter what giant or problem we may face, trust that God has given us the tools and will ultimately give us the victory. You see, this victory wasn't because David was a skilled warrior. It wasn't because he was uh, uh, amazing and mighty and and great at hand-to-hand combat. It was because he trusted in the one and only God to give him the victory. Will you do that with your life as well? At this time, let's go ahead and stand. I'll pray, and then we'll sing a song with the band. And as we sing this song, listen to the words and see how it can apply to our life as well. Let's go ahead and pray.